3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Grab your 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. Good morning and welcome to Monday Breakfast here at 3CR, 855am. It's just past 7am. My name is James Tate and I'll be your new Monday Breakfast host here and we'll be showcasing some of the great interviews and conversations that have been happening here at the station. On today's show, we'll be playing some of the wonderful interviews from Tuesday hometime superstar Jan Bartlett, talking refugee rights with Neil Parra, lifting smart sanctions on Zimbabwe with Dr. Meredith Bergman, and the state of the Middle East with Dr. Tim Anderson. So, grab a cup of coffee, keep warm, and buckle in. We'll head to our first interview for today uh, with Jan Barclay speaking to Tamil refugee activist Neil Parra ahead of his 1,000-kilometre walk to Marrickville uh, to see Anthony Albanese in his bid to advocate for refugee rights here in this country. Enjoy. Many people enjoy a leisurely walk at the weekend along the creek into Parkland, perhaps around the neighbourhood ending in a coffee shop. But that's not what Neil Parra is planning, far from it. In early August, he begins a thousand kilometre walk for freedom from Ballarat to Marrickville in Sydney. The office of the Honourable Anthony Albanese at his electoral office. This is a huge undertaking, Neil. Something I'm sure you've put a lot of thought into. But can we talk about your family's arrival in Australia. You were labelled as unauthorised maritime arrivals. What were you hoping your life would be? When we saw the uh, Australian Navy Navy ships there and we kind of thought, okay, our life is going to be uh, in a peaceful and better life, I was able to provide, uh, make a, a good life for my children. Even after 11 years, uh, I didn't make that. But I was thinking when I saw the Australian saw, I, when I saw the Australian uh, people, I thought, okay, I am in a better country now. I am in a safe country. But it looks like 99.9% better than where I was from. But still, uh, we didn't get any safe. We didn't get any certainty. We don't have any freedom yet for many refugees including my family and children that's what i was dreaming when i uh, as soon as i arrived in australia i thought okay we're now getting the freedom but still not when did you arrive in ballarat and i'd imagine you got a good reception there because there's a community in ballarat who support refugees asylum seekers yes there was a group but i did not know there was a group I just arrived to Ballarat after a suggestion from the Department of Immigration. I arrived to Ballarat in 2013, September. Then as soon as I arrived to Ballarat, 
the Red Cross, that time my case worker, the case manager or case worker, they have connected me with the refugee advocate. Also, I started to write some uh, notes and put on the neighbor's letterboxes. Uh, I am Neil, uh, a refugee from Sri Lanka. I come to this, uh, live in Ballarat, but I couldn't speak any English, so I couldn't write better. But in, in that, I don't, re- I didn't, I don't remember now how did I make the sentences, but somehow I made some sentences and uh, informed to the neighbors, and that's how I started to know the people in Ballarat. And what sort of stories were they telling you about how they could help you? They didn't tell any anything that how they can help me or anything. They just, uh, uh, you mean who? You're just a community or the group? Your neighbours. Neighbours, yes. Send, send us a chocolate and welcome notes uh, and the cards are saying, welcome, thanks for letting us know. That's only they said at that stage. How were your daughters yeah, getting on? When we come to Ballarat, only myself was able to uh, understand at least a little bit of English. Even my children, they, they couldn't. So my oldest one was the kindergarten age, but she didn't go to kinder until we come to Ballarat. They had a few few weeks in Dandenong area uh, for a kindergarten, but they didn't do that well, only a only few days or a few weeks. Then we came to Ballarat and the last term, uh, only the last few weeks. See, uh, my oldest daughter went to the kindergarten. She couldn't understand any. If if the kindergarten teacher says something, she couldn't understand. And it was continued until the grade two when she got to um, she had the, when she was at the primary school until grade two. She had a really difficult time understanding English because we don't speak English at all at home because we don't we didn't know English either. So it was very difficult for them. And now all my three children are best readers and writers. They're writing stories. They're writing poems. They are good readers also. And your wife? Uh, my wife is uh, also here. Uh, at the early stage, she was looking after the kids. Uh, and now she's a volunteer like me. You were, said you were a caseworker with the, the Red Cross. What were they able to put forward to get you permanent residence. Did you understand what was happening? Um, no, because I couldn't speak English. I did understand a little bit, but I couldn't speak English. Uh, my English understanding was based on the what we were at when we were at the school. We, we, we were ha- we had English as a second language, but uh, no, but I didn't I didn't take any serious uh, interest on learning other languages. So it was difficult for me and them to have a communication between us. So we need always uh, interpreters. The answer would, I could say, no, I didn't understand. And then your third daughter was born. How did that change things for you? Did she then become an Australian citizen? How does it work? When we were uh, in the detention centre, she was born. Uh, and through interpreter, uh, de- uh, department informed us. Even if she born in Australia, she is not uh, an Australian citizen, and unless she lives here continuously ten years, she can become automatically become an Australian citizen after ten the tenth birthday. But we should apply for the evidence of citizenship. So uh, we did that uh, when she had a tenth birthday last year. 
and I applied for uh, citizenship uh, evidence certificate or something. We got it within 30 hours. We got it uh, approved. And what is the status for you, your wife and your other two daughters? We are in limbo. We don't have any any legal status here. But uh, the second one is a stateless child. The people saying stateless children, if they live in a the country, they are citizens of that country. But I don't know how to get that uh, citizenship for her as well. Because there's, the, there's a way, there's a, there's a uh, stateless clinic in, in Melbourne, but I tried to contact with them. I couldn't make a contact. I'm still trying to, but uh, or people say, Stateless children will be eligible for uh, citizenship. Just waiting everything here. Yeah, I don't know. At this stage, we are limbo. We, are, we don't have any other legal status. How do you survive, Neil, you and your family? Are you able to work at all? No, I, I'm not allowed to work because I don't have work rights. I don't have uh, my family not have visas at all. We rely on the community uh in the Ballarat, University of Ballarat and some surrounding places as well. And the children are happy at school? They are very happy. They're very happy at school, but they are starting to realise what's happening to the parents, what's going to happen to them, that sort of things. They're just starting to worry about their lives. So because of the government's keeping the or punishing the parents, they are not punishing the parents. They are just punishing the future genera- future and generations, future leaders, or future people who are going to take over this world and they are going to look after the, even after the world and people. They are punishing those people by punishing these people by, because of we came by board. It's not a way to punish those children. Do you have contacts with other families in a similar situation? I am trying for the last 10 years. I couldn't find anyone, but there should be many, but I couldn't find anyone. When did you decide to set up the Union of Australian Refugees? This year in March, uh, the refugees have a sit-down rally, a four-day sit-down rally in, in front of Canberra Parliament House. When we were there, we, ha- we were sitting there four days. And in these four days, lots of people, they were going visiting to Canberra or even politicians, they, they had a busy, uh, busy week, I, I knew that. Uh, anyway, so no one come to say hello, no one come to ask, why are you here? No one didn't ask. So I thought, because of we are refugees, it's not uh, making sense, or I don't know what English I can use. It doesn't make them to come forward and talk to us. Even no Australians were there. Uh, there are, even in, in Canberra, there are a lot of uh, um, advocating organizations and groups like Rural Australian for Refugees uh, and uh, Refugee Action Collective. There are many groups in Canberra as well, but only only refugee by, by ourselves. So it was easy for the politicians to ignore us. Four days that we were seen but not heard. At that point, at the fourth day, I decided to do something and I had I discussed with some other refugees everyone uh, the people who who I have discussed they agreed with me so we have started a, a union of Australian refugees 
I have started with their supports, but at the, at the moment uh, we are trying to get more members, but I don't have any members at this stage. That's the reason that I started this Union of Australian Refugees. The motto is be seen, be heard. That's the way I, I created that motto. <laughs> well, from there, you've decided to walk to Sydney. That's a huge undertaking. Yes, uh, I created a union of Australian refugees and uh, a lot of people supporting. But this now I decided to do this work for freedom is how long we going to every everyone just we see that we union of Australian refugees I have created and I have created a Facebook page. I have created a Facebook group and I have created a WhatsApp group as well. There were so many refugees were in that group and when they were granted uh, ROS visa, they are disappearing, they are leaving the groups, they are going. So it's, 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 I, we realize so many refugees still waiting for that, so many refugees going and this is tormenting them. So when they see their friends, when they see their... In, in some, some refugees, in the same family, someone getting the ROS visa, someone not, someone asked to go back. So then we, I decided, oh, yeah, I, I also can't, because my children also growing. It's time to do a big awareness thing. How can I do this? Then I, I thought, okay, walk for the freedom. So walking, walking is an Australian thing. And I feel I am an Australian. An Australian thing, walking for some courses, good courses. 1,000 kilometers is a long time. Are you in training? I am doing some training, not a good training, but I am normally a good walker as an ACS volunteer. Um, I go to a lot of land search and sometimes we do uh, five kilometers walk is equal to no less than 35, 40 kilometers. <laughs> I think I can do that. To do such a trip, you need a great deal of support. Where's the support coming yeah. from? I advertised to, through the uh, Facebook post and also well, one day this, uh, uh, I didn't meet advocate yet. Her name is, uh, she's having an uh, asylum seeker solidarity or something Facebook group. She contacted me. Her name is uh, Sumi and she contacted me and said, Neil, you should go to uh, attend one on Zoom meeting with the Refugee Action Collective and let them know about your work. And then I joined the meeting online and I, I spoke about my idea. And from there, Kiran from Refugee Action Collective just come forward to support this work with the organizing the team. So he done a great job, or he not done yet, he's doing a great job. He's doing a marvelous job to organize all these uh, support teams. How many days do you believe it will take you? Leaving on the 1st of August and uh, uh, with including the rest days, uh, it's going to be expected to be there by 8th of September. So you have to have somewhere to sleep every night? You have to have food and yes, water I, every day? Initially, yeah, initially I had planned to live in a tent or stay on a tent. and I got all the tent and everything ready. But now in some places I will be staying with some people's house. And of course I will in some places I will still live on the tents. And supplies of food and water along the way? Most of things I am carrying and uh, in some in some cases and in some places 
people are trying to help me just with the food and drinks and everything people will help in some places but most of the place i will be carrying and i will have all my picnic items like tent burners everything yeah what do you expect to find when you get to marrickville i am trying to get an appointment from uh, our prime minister anthony albanese i know he is very busy but just if if i can get an appointment with him that would be great uh, otherwise someone will come so i have started a petition online on the change.org/walkforfreedom where i am telling my why i am doing this work and what what i am going to do with uh, prime minister if i can meet him so there are three points as i can tell everyone but i will discuss the other things as well if i get a chance but these three things are my priority my first priority is all children who were born to refugees uh, in australia and when they are given citizenship by birth or anything they should have equal rights like other australian children my 10 year old australian child is an australian citizen now but she doesn't have any other rights like other australian children has because services australia says no she is under 16 and the parents are or legal guardians not eligible for these things so we can't give that so technically even she is australian she doesn't have anything so when she grown up one day she is going to say the government says people who are citizen and we are we are here for citizen australian but she is not looked after even even every speech the prime minister or the politicians or even previous government or any politician when they talk australian first they say when they say australian first my child is an australian now she got an australian citizen she got a certificate also in her hand to anyone to show but she is not included in that announcement each time when the politician says something for australian so this has to be changed that's my first one the second one is the children like my children and my children there are many other refugee children they went to school or they go to school who go to australian school should be given citizenship uh, or permanent permanent residency with a pathway to become australian citizen and this is the right thing to do so this two the first two i said is a very important and priority things to look after the younger people look after the children so we all the world always fighting for the children so look after those children and australia is renowned for the humanitarian and we are renowned for the humanitarian we are part of the australia is part of the declaration for humanitarian rights human rights and everything when they decide the laws and everything policy when they create the policy few ages ago australia was part of that but they breaching that policy but they were part of it and they are breaching those two things should be happen immediately without any delay and the third thing is they have announced 19000 tpv and shgv holders will be given permanent residency visa or resolution of status visa i don't know what is resolution of status visa actually has any hidden point or anything we don't know but they announced that when andrew jars announced on the 13th of february 2023 about this 19000 people will be given permanent visa or ros visa he has missed out those other people are here as well 
So what I am asking is, already those who are in this land of opportunity, they should be included in this announcement, in this visa process. Because it's already too late, 11 years with the people's lives, it's too late. So what I am asking is, those who are already in this land of opportunity should be included in that announcement and should be included in the visa process. It's already too late for all of us. It's 11 years, they are playing with the human lives. It's not the human rights. We just thinking this, we, every refugees were waiting to, for a change of government because they were thinking this government would be the more humanitarian. But they're not solving that. But they, they saw a little bit, but not much, not enough that. The children are waiting, adults are waiting. We came young, we dying, dying as an old without doing anything. We want to do many things in this country. We want to contribute. Let us to do this. Good for the country, good for us, good for everyone. Neil, how old are your two eldest children now? The oldest one is 15 and the second one is 13. If nothing changes in the near future, it's going to affect their opportunities to maybe go to university and find employment. Yes, definitely it will affect. I don't know how they're going to school if the last time... Yesterday, someone asked me about that. They, we don't have visa, they go to school. I don't know what, how is that happening. But they can't go to uni, they can't go to TAFE. They want to go to uni and they have a dream. My, do, my oldest daughter wants to be a um, cardiologist and she has a, a, some, some cardiologist in the special team. She wants to do that. And the other one wants to do uh, uh, psychiatrics or something. I don't know. So they have an aim. They have a goal. Their goal will be spoiled if I don't give them a certainty. So if I, as a father, if I should give them a certainty, it's not in my hand. If someone could have a power and they're controlling everyone, I want them to change. I want them to open their heart because of these younger children, because they can't find the jobs, they can't do the TAF at least, but even they want to do the uni. She's 15 years old. I don't know how long she's going to be at the school, or I don't know how long she can study. A lot of schools, or even government school or public school, private school, they're supporting refugees. They let them just get education. But what's the point while why they're studying, 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 at that one stage, if they couldn't contribute to the country while they're dreaming to contribute? They think as they are Australian, they never think about they are Sri Lankan, they are Iranian, they are Myanmar, they are Afghanistan. These children always thinking we are Australians. Finally, Neil, I'm sure they're very proud of you taking on this walk. They're very proud of that, but also they're very uh, uh, nervous. When I decide to do this, uh, my oldest daughter asked me that, do you want to do this? Please write to the politician, uh, our local MB, federal MB, and tell her that I want to do that, I, uh, I can't do that. I did that, but she didn't reply. But I, I did that. Uh, sorry, I had to do this, but uh, I can't do this work. I don't know how can I, I can do this 7,000 kilometers, but I had to do this because of my family. I just told her my family. See, anyway, so politicians ignored our request. Uh, not only my family's request, they may ignore every single refugee's request. All right, well, I can say congratulations on... Yeah, on this venture. So, uh, one more thing. Uh, one yes. more thing I can say before we go is uh, tormenting not only for refugees, 
not only for uh, refugee children this government or any government uh, that's in australia that's we are in australia so i can i i can talk about this government means here in australia so this government keeping us in limbo and vulnerable is tormenting our family straight away and our our family and friends back in sri lanka also the people who are regardless of the weather regardless of any condition they are always on street fighting for us they are 24 hours uh, uh, 24/7 they are working even see look at this my work i can't make this success without these people's hard work i am just they just told me neil to you do the training you do the work don't worry about anything we do that and i receive my emails from their communication every single minute they are 24 hours they are working hard to do something better for those people in their hands so the government should at least do better thing for the refugees for their own australians in in their terms we are australian but we are not proper in a officially australian but there are of, of officially australian people they born and bred here they all fight for us so they, the government can look after them by giving us a good news when they give us a good news they are happy they'll be very proud of them we will be proud of everyone the government make at least for them as well did you get my point i do and i've been speaking with neil para who just in a week or so is off on a 1000 kilometer walk to meet the prime minister hopefully at his marrickville office in sydney That was Jan Bartlett speaking to Neil Parra, Tamil refugee activist who is embarking on a 1000km walk to Marrickville starting tomorrow to meet with Prime Minister Anthony Albanese, calling for an end to the uncertainty many refugees in this country face. If you want to help Neil's cause, there is a petition which you can sign, and you can find that petition by simply going to Google and googling Neil Parra petition. That's Neil Parra N E I L para P A R A petition and there you'll find the link to the change.org petition website. It's coming up to 7:30 here at 3CR Monday breakfast and we'll jump to a bit of music now uh, from Melbourne's very own alt country rock superstars Quality Used Cars with their new and very timely single that I'm sure a lot of you out there in listener land can relate to. This is Since the World's Been Turning Upside Down. Left my house, housemate whining. Used to bug me, but now I don't mind it. I mean, what's the point of going out and fighting them if they're just as scared as me and you? Since the world's been turning upside down, I've been sweating buckets, I've been stressing out. Trying to keep my feet flat on the ground, trying to keep on keeping up with it now. I've been losing sleep, my heart's been heavy, I've been packing on weight, but I've been doing that already since things have been flipping the other way around. I've been spending all my time trying to tie things down, all my emails have been about finding enlightenment, 
Everybody looks at you like they want to fight you like a driver with a cyclist like Dutton would have migrant like I've taken a test drive no intention of buying it. Now since the world you live in has been inverting since the shit's gotten thick and things have started worsening I'm just trying to reacquire a little purpose and flip a few things back round. Flip a few things back Silence used to bug me, but now I don't mind it. Since the world's been turning upside down, I've been feeling in ways I didn't think I knew how. Cause the world will keep on turning, just not quite the way it's been though. And they'll keep saying it's alright, but it's been so long since it's been so. Baby, you and I are just two blowflies sitting by a bathroom window. Maybe we just gotta ride this one out. That was Since the World's Been Turning Upside Down by Melbourne's own Quality Used Cars. You can catch that single and a whole new album uh, from Quality Used Cars called Quality of Life at the band's upcoming album launch on the 25th of August at the Brunswick Ballroom. For ticket info, just head to Brunswick Ballroom's website at brunswickballroom.com.au. Where does the profit your power company makes end up? 
If you join Copower, you get to decide where 100% of our revenue goes. So while we work to dismantle the whole broken energy market, our members are building the world they want to live in by supporting strike funds, renewables projects, anti-poverty initiatives, and much more. So change your power company and then start changing everything else. That's what Copower is all about. Victorian energy fact sheets and basic plan information documents are available at cooperativepower.org.au. For clear advice on the right plan for you, contact us on 03 9068 Get to the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival, screening the very best documentaries from South by Southwest, Sundance, Tribeca, as well as the best local Melbourne and Australian documentaries. Online from the 1st to the 31st of July and at Cinema Nova from the 21st to the 30th of July. For more information, head to mdff.org.au and cinemanova.com.au. The Melbourne Documentary Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. Trans Family is a not-for-profit organization providing a peer support group for loved ones including parents, siblings, extended family and friends of a trans and gender diverse person. Trans Family runs discussion groups in person and online. We offer a safe space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your situation and provide peer support. We are especially keen to hear from loved ones in regional and rural Victoria. Donations to Trans Family are tax-deductible. For more information, visit transfamily.org.au or look for us on Facebook. Trans Family is a 3CR supporter. Welcome back to Monday Breakfast here on 855 AM 3CR. It's... 7.34 in the morning on this lovely Monday morning. I hope you're having a, a lovely day out there. Um, hope your cup of teas are nice and nice and warm. Hope it's not too cold out there. Next up, we have an interview with Dr. Meredith Bergman, President of the Zimbabwe Information Centre, on the campaign to end smart sanctions on Zimbabwe. This is presented again by Jan Bartlett. Have a good one. The Zimbabwe Information Centre has launched an online anti-sanctions campaign to request the Australian government to remove its now misnamed smart sanctions against a few Zimbabwean personalities because they are now perversely blocking the entire country's development strategy. But many people might be wondering why Zimbabwe? Indeed, exactly where is Zimbabwe and what the connection is with Australia? To explain this and other issues, I spoke with Dr. Meredith Bergman, the president of the Zimbabwe Information Centre, and asked her first to take us back in recent history of Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe, which was formerly southern Rhodesia, was the subject of sanctions from around the world when the illegal Ian Smith regime was running the country. After 1980, when a liberation movement under the control of mostly Robert Mugabe came to power, these sanctions weren't happening. Mugabe became more and more autocratic as time went on, 
And by the late 1990s, it was being very autocratic. There were illegal invasions of, uh, of farmland and most of the farmland was sold out to Robert Mugabe's comrade or, you know, his, his fellow looters. It became a very vicious and uh, predatory regime. So a organisation called the MDC, the Movement for Democratic Change, arose, mostly out of the trade union movement. And in the late 1990s, in 1999, in fact, the MDC was formed, the Movement for Democratic Change. And there were elections throughout the early 2000s, which the MDC mostly won. But, of course, Mugabe just refused to accept these these elections and continued to rule, becoming more and more autocratic all the time. So sanctions were imposed on him in the early 2000s uh, and, and in 2002, Australia imposed sanctions on Zimbabwe, really talking about the human rights violations and particularly aiming it at Mugabe. And then later became smart sanctions which were meant to be aimed at individual leaders of Mugabe's government. And I remember um, approaching the Australian government at this time asking them to police the smart sanctions because some of these leaders of ZANU-PF, Mugabe's party, were actually, their children were students at Australian institutions. And I can still remember a bit of debate within ourselves whether we should target the children of these people. But in the end, we believed we had to. And in fact, the government at that time did send home from um, Australian universities uh, a number of Zimbabwean students. But the problem with the sanctions regime is that since the removal of uh, Mugabe in 2017 and his death in 2019, there hasn't been much reason for the sanctions to continue. And in actual fact, they've been very damaging to the ordinary people of Zimbabwe. You mentioned there about children of people from Zimbabwe studying at Australian education institutions. One not part of that clique, though, was a young woman who who actually went back to Zimbabwe, and I'm talking about Sekai Holland. Can you talk about her for a few minutes? Because she was a very important part of that struggle. Oh, yes. Sekai was much earlier in these uh, sanctions. Yes. In the 1960s, Sekai came to Australia to go to university and by the late 1960s she had well she married Jim Holland an Australian and became very involved with the anti-apartheid movement in Australia uh, and was very prominent during the anti-springbok campaign in 1971 so she became very well known at that time she also became very good friends with a lot of the Aboriginal activists and she actually also worked as a builder's labourer and uh, became very involved with the builder's labourer's green bands in the early 1972. So she was very much part of 
the progressive movement in Australia. And she was a very striking person to see. She she used to wear a big gold turban and was well over six foot and was rather beautiful and very very dominant in any situation. And she she became a good friend of a lot of us. And she went back to Zimbabwe to, well, she actually went back to Africa to be part of the liberation movement in Zimbabwe. She has recognised war veteran status from the Zimbabwean government and people because she did work with the frontline revolutionary movements of both ZANU and ZAPU and was part of the war to liberate Zimbabwe, actually. And after that, when Mugabe came to power, that she wasn't totally keen on Mugabe, but she did go, but she and her husband went back to be part of the the nation-building exercise after 1980. Um, Sekai taught in tertiary education organisation. She, she had a journalism degree, and so she taught communications, and Jim worked in a number of areas um, building water pumps and later beginning Zimbabwe's, you know, foundling um, IT industry. So he was, he's been very important in the nation-building exercise. But in, by, by 1999, Sekai had decided, as had any other Zimbabweans, that Mugabe was just an autocrat and a tyrant and had to go. And that's when she came to Australia and asked her friends from the early 70s, the anti-apartheid movement days, she asked us to become involved in supporting the democratic project in Zimbabwe. And so we set up an organisation called the Zimbabwe Information Centre. And we have been supportive of democracy and freedom issues in Zimbabwe ever since. And have been back to Zimbabwe on numerous occasions. And we became very supportive of Morgan Changarai, who was the leader of the movement for democratic change until he died oh, about five years ago now. She's paid a heavy price for her support for democracy, though, hasn't she? Oh, absolutely. In 2008, I think it was, after the MDC had won the election and Mugabe still refused to go, Sekai was part of a group that was holding a prayer meeting just outside of Harare and the Mugabe thugs and the police arrested her, took her into the police station and broke many, many bones in her body. They jumped on her, they kicked her. She was brutally, brutally tortured. Amnesty International used uh, a photograph of her recovering in hospital as part of their anti-Mugabe campaign. It was such a terrifying image of her swollen, swollen and bruised arms and legs. She was eventually, they managed to get her to a hospital in South Africa and then eventually to hospital in Australia. And she was in and out of hospital for a year having treatment for her her terrible injuries. So what happened to the movement for democratic change? Is it still there or has it been superseded? When Mugabe was left power, really because of a coup by Emerson Manangagwa, who is now the president, a lot of the steam went out of the opposition to the ruling party 
and with the death of Morgan Changarai from cancer, the leading lights of the, and also Gibson Sabanda died. It, a, there were a lot of deaths in the leadership of the MDC. Uh, a lot of it from AIDS, which was never properly. There was a lack of openness about what was happening about HIV and AIDS. So the MDC split into a number of different organisations, and the the largest of those is now led by a man called Nelson Chamisa, who we actually brought out to Australia um, at one stage when he was a leader of the youth organisation. But Nelson Chamisa has gone into a sort of alliance with the old Mugabe forces uh, around Grace Mugabe, Mugabe's uh, uh, widow. And so a lot of what... I mean, basically, Sekai is now in the situation of not really supporting either the MDC remnant under Nelson Chamisa or the government of, of Emerson Manangagwa. But she does acknowledge that things are much better under Emerson Manangagwa than they were when Robert McGargie was there. She says the fear and the interference in everyday Zimbabweans' lives has really gone now under the Manangagwa government. Why we are arguing that the sanctions should go is because they're not really just targeting the leadership anymore. They are becoming very damaging to the economy of Zimbabwe and to the ordinary people. For instance, with the Australian sanctions, for instance, Telstra won't have any dealings with uh, Zimbabwe, although it's not clear that that should be part of the sanctions, but it is, uh, which makes communication very difficult for people who have, you know, the expat families. Uh, many Zimbabweans are now living in Australia. The banks won't have any direct um, connection with Zimbabwe because they're very afraid of doing the wrong thing and then suddenly being subject to international fines. So trying to send money to Zimbabwe just, you know, to, to your cousin or your mother or something is almost impossible. There's very little foreign investment because the people who would be doing foreign investment fear that they might be subject to the sanctions regime. And so the economy in Zimbabwe is really stagnating in a terrible way. And um, there, there's actually hunger in a country which should be the um, food belt of, uh, of Africa. It was always known as the food basket of South Africa in the past. And so many people have left. And that's very sad too, because the people that have left are the educated uh, middle class that can actually afford to get away. When you think about it, so many of our great nurses in hospitals and nursing homes are, are in fact Zimbabwean and Zimbabwean trained. IT people, engineers, I mean, Zimbabwe does still have a, a, a fine education system which produces these uh, graduates who then flee uh, as soon as they can to other countries. And that part of that is because of the sanctions regime. And also, like many of those dictatorships around the world, Mugabe and his wife took 
an unknown number of diamonds and money out of the country. Is she still in the country or is she gone? Grace Mugabe is still there, as far as I know, and she did, in fact, as you say, loot a large amount from the from the people. The, the amounts vary depending on who you talk to, but very, very many millions of of dollars in, in things like diamonds. Um, and, you know, she's built a couple of huge mansions, one's known as a palace. And I think she has uh, property interests in parts of Asia too. But that really isn't the problem now, although it would help enormously to get that money back. The problem is that there's no proper investment going on in the industries that need to be happening in Zimbabwe. Well, Australia wasn't the only country to put sanctions on. You've got the US and the EU as well. Have they lifted their sanctions? Look, I'm not totally sure whether they they have also lifted sanctions. I I do know that when the ZIC, the Zimbabwe Information Centre, started this petition to lift sanctions and putting the reasons in it, a bit what I've just told you, the fact that it's really hurting the people rather than the the leaders that were meant to be hurting from these sanctions. But I I understand that we're the first people to have started a petition to stop the sanctions and and the uh, various uh, political organisations in Zimbabwe are very pleased that we've done this. So we're rather hopeful that we get... We already have a a very large number of signatures and we're hoping it becomes even more significant. And who are you aiming this petition at? Well, the Australian government in in the first place, yes. And um, I, I think they will be likely to think about it. I mean, Zimbabwe has never been a, a partisan issue in Australian politics. It's quite interesting that whether it's a coalition government or a Labor government, there was support for the MDC and there was great criticism and action against the Mugabe government. So we don't expect the issue of stopping sanctions as becoming a partisan issue. I mean, if Penny Wong decided to do it tomorrow, I can't see anyone now arguing that we need to keep sanctions against the Manangagwa government. I mean, if you're going to sanction the Manangagwa government, there are plenty of other authoritarian leaderships in other parts of the world that you could also be aiming sanctions at. Would lifting these sanctions help Australia in any way? No. They've never been... Uh, well, in fact, you could even argue that they have been, to some extent, a problem for South, for Australian businesses, especially the uh, sanctions around mining, because Australian are obviously very interested in being involved with mining ventures in Zimbabwe because there are very similar issues to do with mining in Zimbabwe as there is in Australia. Can you tell us where this petition can be signed? How do people get their signature on this petition? I would Google ZIC petition, drop Australia's 
smart sanctions on Zimbabwe and the site should then appear. Or, and for more details, you can follow the link, which is much easier, which is the HTTPS colon two forward slashes. Say no to sanctions, or one word, dot com slash. Just finally, Meredith, have you been back to Zimbabwe in recent years? Oh, I was actually in Zimbabwe in 2017 during the coup, quite by accident, of course. I didn't cause the coup or know that it was going to happen. We had um, been um, at the opening of uh, an Australian exhibition in um, Johannesburg. It, it was an exhibition called Australians Against Apartheid, and it was about the among other things, the 1971 Springbok Tour. And a group of us, about five of us, went up to Zimbabwe to stay with um, Sekai and check out what was happening. I mean, I've been backwards and forwards to Zimbabwe probably a dozen times. But in 2017, we were there uh, as the coup actually happened. And it was very weird because being in a city where a sort of violent change of government is taking place and everything was just silent and all the, the streets were reasonably deserted and but the rumors were amazing everyone had a, a rumor about someone being killed somewhere or this or that building being under attack and it, it was extraordinary didn't have any impact on you getting home no <laughs> by the time we got to the airport we were pretty keen to get home because uh, i mean Harare is quite a difficult place to stay anyway, and with nothing particularly working during the uh, during the coup, uh, we were very pleased to get to the airport and get home. The Robert Mugabe Airport, might I say, I think it's been changed now. Yes, good job. Thank you very much, Meredith. Okay, thanks, Dan. And I've been speaking with Dr. Meredith Bergman who's the president of the Zimbabwe Information Centre. was Dr. Meredith Bergman, President of the Zimbabwe Information Centre on the campaign to end smart sanctions on Zimbabwe. For more details on the anti-smart sanctions campaign, you can just head to the website of the Zimbabwe Information Centre, that is zic.org.au. Have you heard of Long COVID? If you or someone you know have had COVID-19, you may still experience symptoms weeks or months later. There are many symptoms of long COVID, but the most frequent are extreme tiredness, shortness of breath, and muscle aches and joint pains. Anyone can experience long COVID, including children. You can find information in your language on the Health Translations website, healthtranslations.vic.gov.au. Just type long COVID as a keyword. A 3CR supporter.
Bisexual Alliance Victoria is a not-for-profit organisation dedicated to equality and justice for multi-gender attracted people, including bi, pan, regardless of label or no label at all, their partners and allies. Bisexual Alliance runs discussion groups in person and online. The group offers a safe and fun space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your sexual identity and provide peer support. Bisexual Alliance is especially keen to hear from multi-gender attracted people in regional and rural Victoria. Donations of $2 or more to Bisexual Alliance are now tax deductible. For more information, visit our website at bi-alliance.org, email info at bi-alliance.org or find us on Facebook or Twitter. A 3CR supporter. I'm bisexual. This is Monday Breakfast. You're here with me, James Tate. It's almost 8am here on a lovely Monday morning. And we're going to head to our last interview for today on Monday Breakfast with political economist Dr. Tim Anderson, looking at the changing world in relation to the Middle East, the rise of the BRICS countries and the fall in the dollar. This is again presented by Jan Bartlett. Enjoy. The focus now is the Middle East in context of the changing world, the rise of BRICS and the fall of the dollar. And to do that, I spoke with Dr Tim Anderson, former senior lecturer in political economy at the University of Sydney. Can you first explain, Tim, what you mean by the term the changing world? The changing world is something that's been recognised even in the US that we have been shifting away from a world that's dominated by one big superpower into a time when there are different poles of power. It's often called the multipolar world Uh, and that has to do with the rise of China and Russia and the BRICS, the Shanghai Cooperation Organisation and also the big regional organisations in Latin America and the new moves to have some integration in amongst the African countries, you know. So, in other words, the the centre of the world being the old colonial powers is is dying basically, and the the dominant role of the dollar is also beginning to disintegrate. It's still there, but it hasn't. But it's it's shifting clearly. So, the Western dominated institutions, the World Bank, the IMF, the WTO, all of those things are far less important now. And there's a big indeed. There's a big stampede towards. Some new, uh, the new Eastern Bloc coalitions like the BRICS, for example. All right, well, let's start with the Middle East. What does it change from and what is it changing into? So the, the wars in the Middle East uh, this century, in the last 20 years in particular, 20-odd years, have been part of a project which the US called or the Washington called uh, a new Middle East, to create a new Middle East, which was going to be then effectively dominated by the US and its NATO satellites and its regional, not exactly allies, but um, agents like the Israelis and the Saudis, for example. Now, those wars, for the most part, failed. I mean, they succeeded in destroying little Libya, basically, but the, the war in Iraq is failing. The war against Syria failed. The attempt to destroy Iran has failed. The attempt to destroy the Ansarullah-led government in Yemen has failed. So they're in the process of failing 
that big project, basically, and that has important implications because the idea of a new Middle East, which would be mentored by Washington and its and its satellites, um, was to a large part motivated by the desire to prevent integration across the Eurasian supercontinent and the role of Russia and China in the region. And that's that's certainly failed because the role of Russia and China in the Middle East region has increased substantially. Uh, and while the whole Eurasian thing is still in play because it seems like the US has achieved some success in dividing Europe from Russia, nevertheless, the, the rise, as I said, of these multipolar institutions, the Shanghai Cooperation and the, the BRICS are, are proceeding apace. How secure are those countries in the Middle East after, as you say, many years of war and Iraq, Iran, not so much, but Lebanon, and then you go to Yemen. How secure are they now? They're not secured yet. That's why this is a process um, undergoing at the moment. Uh, we haven't reached some any sort of end point with that. But, and, and indeed, the most powerful part of the hybrid wars being waged against all of those countries has been the economic war the blockade, which, uh, of course, the US is able to impose these sorts of economic blockades on, on countries, um, not so much on Russia, because Russia is a big country, but certainly Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua, Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, it's able to damage those countries because international finance is still dominated by the dollar and by the Washington-dominated SWIFT system, which is in Europe, basically. So the power that Washington has in terms of world domination is through the media to a large extent there's still a very strong US domination of the media including the social media but in particular finance because technologically and in terms of commerce the US has not dominated the world for some time we know that the center of production these days has moved to East Asia basically but in finance the US has enormous influence and so that's the, the next step in this process of moving from a unipolar to a multipolar world is the shift um, or the construction of alternatives to the dollar and the SWIFT system, basically. And, and while the US controls that world, global financial system, it is able to effectively punish uh, independent countries who have tried to remain independent and outside its sphere of domination. Can you explain how the power over the money system works for the US and how it's got to the stage where it is? One important aspect of it is the, the role of the dollar, of course, and the fact that the OPEC countries in the 70s were persuaded to denominate all of the oil sales in dollar means that everyone around the world is reliant on having supplies of dollars to be able to purchase things internationally because oil is being sold in dollars, so-called petrodollars, basically. Then you have the Swiss system, which is based in Belgium, but it's an information sharing system between banks. Now, it wasn't set up as a North American institution, but the US, through typical bullying, for example, when the US wanted to block Iran about a decade or so ago from the financial system, it demanded that the SWIFT system, which regulates all of the information exchanges between banks, uh, blockade Iran, or else they were going to impose um, sanctions on the SWIFT system itself. Now, that system is important because basically it's become institutionalized in the sense that a lot of banking conventions, including things like money laundering laws and anti-terrorism laws and so on, are sort of regulated through that system. So in other words, the pretext for surveillance of all financial transactions 
is enforced by this SWIFT system, which the US has bullied into submission to complying with its will to, to comply with the, the unilateral economic, so-called economic sanctions the US imposes on more than 20 countries these days. So in the old political economic analysis of this, it was about the penetration of foreign capital and US capital into other countries under liberal rules. Well, it's very illiberal now, the system where the US passes a law and says, now all transactions with Venezuela or with Nicaragua or with Syria or with Lebanon, such as are decided by the US Treasury, are now blocked and banned. And we will we will fine, for example, European banks if they continue to do business with Iran or Cuba or whoever it is, basically. So that type of power through the information exchange, the key information exchange system, which is the SWIFT system. Now, these days, it's not the only one. There are, there are Russian and Chinese and Iranian systems set up precisely because uh, they're trying to escape that US domination. But it hasn't it hasn't sort of come into reality yet. The key alternatives to the BRICS, to the SWIFT system and the, the rule of the dollar are really being created today in Beijing and, and Moscow and to some extent in Tehran too. Russia and Iran, for example, have uh, an agreement between their banks to exchange information which doesn't require going through the SWIFT system because both Russia and Iran have become the, um, which are also energy exporters, of course, but they have become the target of, of US unilateral sanctions. And similarly, the Chinese are developing a digital yuan, a central bank-controlled digital yuan, digital currency, which will enable them to sidestep this SWIFT system and be and not be controlled by by the U.S. Treasury. Basically, the U.S. Treasury has a little section called OFAC, the Office of Financial Assets Control, which it uses to impose these unilateral fines on on other entities like European banks, for example, and. The, those banks, they pay these fines because they want to keep doing business in the US. So they fear the US sanctions. That's why the Europeans weren't able to break with the US over the, the so-called nuclear deal with Iran, which they had different views on because really the European economy, European large companies are very um, cross-linked, cross-invested with US companies. And so where that's the case, the US Treasury feels that it can intervene and impose penalties on on people that are breaking US unilateral rules. So you say it's going to be very difficult to defeat those US universal rules? It's difficult, but as I said, the, the Chinese, the Russians, the Iranians in particular are doing that at the moment. In Latin America, they've been um, there's been a strong move in trade, in current trade, to move away from the dollar. The first step was with bilateral swaps. So you find with Argentina and China, for example, they will use their own currencies to uh, engage in trade and uh, the same sort of thing with Iran and Russia, for example. So there are there is some bypassing of it, but it's not as widespread as the SWIFT system and the, the dollar still. Um, but the role of the dollar in international trade has declined from, used to be something like three quarters some years ago, and now it's down to less than half, basically. But there are still very big stocks of dollars. I mean, Japan and China hold over a trillion dollars in in dollar terms in, in terms of their reserves, but they're not increasing that. They don't want to increase that. They want to diversify. So there's sort of a soft diversification away from the dollar and the construction of, an, of actually a viable alternative to the SWIFT hasn't arrived yet, but it's coming. You're talking about the impact of 
the US economic power on different aspects, but their client state, if you might like to call it that, Israel, seems to doesn't seem to impact on them at all. Well, because they're integrated with the US system, and if you're integrated with the US system and doing what the US wants, and the Israeli regime um, agrees with everything the US does at the United Nations, for example, that's one way you can see they're integrated, basically. But um, if you're integrated, there's no, you know, there are there are carrots and sticks in the system, you know, and so the Israelis get what around four billion a year from the U.S. are on a drip feed, effectively economically. They get weapons from the U.S. and from Germany, from some of the other European companies, basically. So they are integrated into that system. But little countries like Libya that were not integrated are at risk, particularly when they're isolated. You know, in the case of Syria, Syria had a strong historic relationship with Russia and the Soviet Union before it. So Syria was able to resist more effectively where Libya being isolated was not. So countries are able to resist this power, but it's very difficult when there isn't a a clear alternative they can turn to. And now with the BRICS and the SCO, there are prospect of an alternative is something that... And that's why you see a big rush, really, of African countries and Latin American countries wanting to join the BRICS because they really are realising that these Western institutions are something that um, has been strangling them and and there is the possibility of of an alternative emerging. And where does Saudi Arabia and the other Gulf states fit into this? Well, very interesting question because Saudi Arabia, uh, up until quite recently, would would have been regarded as one of the key uh, satellites, if not allies, of the US because the US doesn't really have allies. They, They want to dominate all of them, including the Europeans. You see... Europeans accepting the subordinate role in relation to Russia these days, and Japan did that in the past, basically. But the Saudis, uh, which were an important agency of control of the US in the Middle East um, until recently, apparently were becoming very resentful of uh, being used up, being exploited. You might remember Donald Trump some years ago, really in a a very cynical and, and crude, typically crude Trump way said the Saudis were just a cash cow and they would have to do what they're told or they'd be destroyed or they'd fall apart you know so they were humiliated the Saudis have been humiliated and they were looking for a chance for some counter leverage of course this is dangerous because any any close collaborator of the US that looks for counter leverage you think of Noriega in Panama Saddam Hussein in Iraq once they start to look for some independence they put themselves at risk but the Saudis have done this and they know they seem to know how far they can go to get away with it. So when Biden went to them recently um, demanding that they pump more oil because of the energy crisis, which was affecting Europe in particular because, after all, the US had tried to blockade huge energy exporters, a series of them, Venezuela, Iran and Russia, and that was a major cause of the, of the energy crisis in, um, in Europe, even if the US appeared to be doing well out of it by selling more expensive gas, natural gas, to the um, to the Europeans. But the Saudis refused to pump more oil and they decided to collaborate with Russia in terms of their... Russia collaborates with the OPEC countries in terms of controlling supply and controlling price in the, in the oil market. So the, the Saudis have made some significant moves, independent moves in recent times. Uh, another notable move was the China, the China brokered uh, reconciliation they had with Iran I mean, the U.S. is very happy to use the Saudis against Iran and pretend that 
a lot of the conflict in the Middle East was some sort of rivalry between the Saudis and Iran. There was that rivalry, but of course the US was behind the um, Saudi side of it, pushing the Saudis to attack what they considered their key strategic rival in the region, Iran. You're listening to Tuesday Home Time on Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR, and I'm speaking to political economist Tim Anderson, and we're travelling around the Middle East, around the world, the changes in the world, the rise of BRICS and the fall of the dollar. And where does the hopeful phasing out of oil fit into what you've been talking about? The phasing out of the petrodollar, it means that if people are selling oil now, for example, with the Saudis and China, China, the Chinese have a an exchange system now based in Shanghai where they are going to, for example, pay the Saudis in Chinese yuan for the oil. So there's already some breakthroughs in that area. It's not universal yet, and the Chinese don't really want the yuan to dominate in the way that the US dollar dominated the system for for some decades, because there are some downsides to having your currency overvalued too. It allows you to buy a lot of things, but it damages your your industry at home, and and the Chinese have seen that basically, that the, the, the cost of US manufacturing has destroyed U.S. manufacturing um, recent decades, basically. So, but there there are some initiatives such as that, such as um, the the Saudis accepting Chinese yuan as payments for their oil, for example. So that's where this um, the soft way of talking about it is diversification away from the dollar, and virtually everyone's talking about that these days, except for the U.S. But it certainly is starting to undermine the the power of the dollar in international transactions. So there are other ways to pay for things, acceptable ways to pay for things other than in US dollars these days. And more about the phasing out of the fossil fuels. How is that going to impact on the world economic order? Well, there's not much phasing out of fossil fuels no, going on, really. In the, the future. The major, yeah, the major so-called um, uh, ecologically sustainable initiatives I mean, the major driver of that these days is China. China has more than the next 10 countries combined in invested in, in sustainable energy um, these days, but it's still using a lot of oil. It's using a lot of coal, for example, um, but it's, it's the major investor in, in sustainable energies, alternative to fossil fuels. But nevertheless, fossil fuels are remaining up there, particularly in the cold countries. You know, that's why this big battle over, over Russian gas and the destruction of the Nord Stream pipeline and the, you know, the US then stepping into the breach and saying, hey, we'll, we'll sell you gas from North America at a much more expensive price, but at least you won't be at the mercy of the of the Russians. You know, So that whole play has showed to us that um, energy, cheap energy, affordable energy is still a big player in the world today. And it's playing an important role because European industry itself was very dependent on, on cheap energy. And now that the price of that energy has gone up, there's a big collapse in, in uh, for example, German industry. You know that, That's why I say that the, the Europeans are really, in many respects, sacrificing their gains in, in recent decades by being drawn into this, um, this war with Russia, basically, um, an economic war with Russia. Even though they're still buying Russian energy oil through India, through China, for example. But nevertheless, um, the US was very keen for a long time to sabotage the, the normalisation of relations between Russia and Europe because 
they, they, the, the North Americans see that as a threat to their domination of, of Western Europe. You've mentioned most of the member, members of the BRICS. What about Brazil? So Brazil was really, uh, under the, the extreme right-wing regime of Bolsonaro, was alienated from that process. It didn't break from BRICS under Bolsonaro, but there was no real momentum coming there. Now that Lula has been re-elected, Lula da Silva has been re-elected as president of Brazil, he's re-energised, first of all, the the regional blocs that were created by Hugo Chavez some some decade ago, the CELAC and the UNASUR, for example, but also the BRICS. So um, Brazil, for example, appointed former president Dilma Rousseff as president of the BRICS Bank just recently and uh, during um, Lula's visit to, to China some months ago. So um, Brazil under Lula has resumed its powerful influence in, in the BRICS group. And it's, it's important because it's not just Brazil, which is a big enough country, a couple of hundred million people with a lot of resources, but also Brazil is a leader of the, the South American bloc, UNASUR and, and the CELAC. So very important relationships with Argentina and Venezuela and so on in, in the rest of Latin America. So bringing the rest of Latin America into the BRICS bloc, for example, is, is going to be an important role in, in the near future that Brazil is going to play. And how do you believe the war in Ukraine is impacting on Russia? Well, it's, the war in Ukraine has, in the short term, it looks like the US has gained from it by gaining its strategic goal of breaking relations between Russia and and, Europe, and Germany in particular, um, including you know, the destruction of the Nord Stream pipeline, which was really something that was of great benefit to the to German industry and, and to Western Europe. They succeeded in that, and then now they're selling energy to North American energy to the Europeans. And, and uh, the, the US economy has benefited from that at the expense of the European economy. But what it has done, uh, what that split or the, 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 the attempt to, the, the long-term attempt really, it's been on the strategic uh, agenda of the US for some time to drive a big wall through um, Eastern Europe to block the, the Russian and also the Far Eastern uh, relations, um, you know, Chinese relations with, with Western Europe. Although that seems to have succeeded, it's also driving the pace of developing these alternatives, the alternatives to the dollar, the alternatives to the, the Swiss system, for example. So Russia has, um, on the one hand, moved with self-sufficiency measures and uh, building up its alternative markets, you know, selling selling its um, its oil, for example, to and, and other manufactured products to other markets other than Western Europe, basically. So it's helped develop those alternatives and push the Russians into, push the pace of developing an alternative financial system because the Russians, like the Iranians, are now blocked from the Swiss system completely. Um, so, of course, they're forced to um, create a, an alternative to the Swiss system, which was talked about for some time but really wasn't, materialized now that's starting to be materialized as i said the russians and the iranians already have information exchange between hundreds and hundreds of their banks um so um financial relations between russia and iran and also increasingly with china are starting to see alternatives i believe for example those alternatives that russia created with iran will gradually pass on to the other allies of Iran in, in West Asia to Iraq and to Syria, to Lebanon, if, if they can get past the political crisis in Lebanon, for example. 
So really the, the, the war in Ukraine has forced the pace of, of building these sorts of alternatives because whatever countries initially thought of the, the Russian invasion or special military operation in Iran, uh, in Ukraine, sorry, they uh, are now seeing that um, they are very vulnerable to, to these sorts of proxy wars and interventions which might all of a sudden upset their upset their um, their economies. For example, Iran, uh, the Iranian president has recently been in Africa signing contracts to start Iranian motor vehicle industry production in East Africa, in Kenya. And the representative from Zimbabwe who was at those meetings said, look, Iran and ourselves are under um, similar sorts of economic blockades. You may remember Zimbabwe was hit with uh, European and North American sanctions because there was a land reform process which began 20 years after independence and they all accused Zimbabwe of human rights violations and so on because of the appropriation of large um, white land holdings in Zimbabwe. So there, there's a great depth of feeling across Latin America, across parts of Asia, across Africa, that they are sharing a lot in common with what's been happening to Russia and, and other important countries like Iran. And how's China getting on with its neighbours? China's got some plays hardball with some of its neighbours, um, partly for this reason. You know the US has something like 800 military bases around the world. About 300 or so of them are surrounding China. And the US has not signed the UNCLOS, the Convention on the Law of the Sea, for example. Um, but it demands that China complies with, with the, the law of the sea. And now China has disputes with most of its neighbours because it, it has some rather ambitious claims in terms of offshore islands. So that has created a conflict with Vietnam, with the, the Philippines, um, because China really wants strategically to control some of these offshore islands and so that they aren't used as a base against China. You notice, for example, the Philippines already has a lot of... Vietnam doesn't, but the Philippines has a lot of US bases. And if they are colonised as as US forward bases against China, uh, China sees that as a strategic threat. So in a similar way to Russia was very sensitive to the US effectively building up a military force in Ukraine against Russia... China is very concerned about potential U.S. allies in the South China Sea being used as a staging post for U.S. bases to be used as type of, what do they call it, containment against Russia. I mean, that's one of the main reasons why the U.S. is still, U.S. Um, occupation forces are still in the south, southern part of the Korean Peninsula, for example, because the U.S. wants a foothold there to contain or surround China. So in response, the Chinese government has really been quite aggressive, I suppose, just with its neighbours, um, because it has security concerns, I think, legitimate security concerns that those neighbours, particularly the ones that are collaborating with the US and allowing US military bases, are going to be um, used to try and surround and contain and control China. I mean, also the US naval presence in the region is one of the things that's helped drive the the Belt and Road Initiative, that the Chinese say, okay, our commerce with the rest of the world is going to be have a lot more to do with land infrastructure, rail and road networks across the Eurasian continent than trying to ship everything out and confronting this U.S. naval presence, which is trying to contain us and, and, and block us in. You know, there's a there's a naval war going on at the moment that the U.S. has with Iran, for example, that Iranian ships have been hijacked 
and then the Iranians have responded in kind, and now the U.S. is increasing some of its military presence in the in the Middle East, supposedly in response to the Iranian threat. But really, it's because the U.S. has has these unilateral so-called sanctions, which in their eyes allows them to seize an Iranian ship. They say this is this is um, you know illegal shipment of of Iranian oil, which is under U.S. unilateral sanctions. You may have noticed also there's a bit of a dispute at the moment in the Gulf of Mexico that some of the companies don't want to offload seized Iranian oil there because they worry that it's going to get them into trouble with Iran now because Iran is starting to be more assertive in international affairs, basically, and they will respond tit for tat with the seizure of ships. So the Chinese have, have in a sense, have been encouraged into their Belt and Road Initiative by the fact that the U.S. has played this very aggressive role with naval blockades. As you said, the U.S. has over 700 bases around the world. What's the cost-benefit or the cost-deficit for all those bases? And also the huge amount of money of the economy of the U.S. that goes into keeping those bases and keeping the military on a war footing, I suppose. Yeah, well, it's. I mean, there's a bill at the moment, the NDAA, a bill in, in the U.S. Congress, which is approaching a trillion dollars, basically. And but that's a sort of the annual type of commitment that they make to the, their overall military and and so-called national security budget. And they tack a lot of things onto it and so on. But it's true that the U.S. military machine is massively expensive, and of course they do things in a very expensive way. To you know, it's notorious that a lot of their Technology you see it in Ukraine at the moment, very expensive technology, being knocked out by relatively cheap suicide drones, the lancets that the Russians are using. You know, so the U.S. does everything in a very expensive way to pump up to inflate its um, notorious military-industrial complex. You know, they, you big U.S. companies are making a lot of money out of every war that they get involved in, in particular the Ukraine war, because of their, they're getting a lot of their relatively state-of-the-art and expensive equipment there and and seeing how long it's going to last, you know. But that huge industry, um, I saw there was quite a good interview with the former US official, Lawrence Wilkerson, who's now an academic. Uh, and he was saying it's a massive it's a massive industry, but it's unsustainable because it depends upon the role of the dollar. Again, we're coming back to the role of the dollar. The, the fact that everyone is still demanding US dollars, not because... They want to buy U.S. products or invest in the U.S. necessarily, but because they're using those dollars to simply engage in commerce with everyone else. And that has artificially inflated the, the value of the dollar to the benefit of U.S. purchasing power. Once that starts to erode, once the petrodollar starts to erode, once people are buying and selling oil and gas and so on in, in other currencies, whether it's a BRICS gold-backed currency or the, or the Chinese digital yuan or whatever it is, that's going to have a big impact on the sustainability of U.S. spending power. You know, you may have heard also that the U.S. has this massive budget deficit. They've got a huge debt, about $32, 33000000000000 trillion, while the, the, the World Bank and the IMF for many decades were arguing on behalf of the U.S. that other countries have to live within their means and engage in export industries to pay off their, their debts and not go into public debt and so on. The US has this massive debt, which is only able to be sustained because of the, the, the role of the dollar internationally. So these things are 
interconnected, the, the capacity of the U.S. to keep uh, funding a trillion dollars a year military security industry is very closely tied to the role of the, the dollar in the world. And we haven't even talked about the impacts of climate change. Yes, well, that's something that's, that's gone under the radar, hasn't it? You know, because people are, are focused on very much more short-term concerns when, for example, the gas is the gas pipeline from Russia to Germany is blown up. You know, then people are focused on uh, the cost of living for basic citizens in Europe, uh, but also the destruction of of industry which depended on cheap energy. So, all of those things are uh, focus the mind on on short-term needs. Thank you once again, Tim. Welcome, Tim. And many thanks once again to Dr. Tim Anderson. That was Jan Bartlett talking to political economist Dr. Tim Anderson. This has been Monday Breakfast here on 855am 3CR. Thank you for joining me today. I hope you've learned a little bit about the world and have a wonderful start to your week. The sun is out, so get out there and absorb some of those sunny rays. And we'll catch you next week for another edition of Monday Breakfast at 7am. Now stay tuned for another blockbuster episode of Women on the Line. tuned in to 3CR Community Radio. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.